lock your doors, close the blinds, change your passwords. This is the Dry Cleaner Cast. Welcome to the Dry Cleaner Cast, a podcast that takes a new look at the war on terror, its legacy, and espionage in the 21st century. This podcast is written, edited, and presented by Chris Carr. On today's podcast, I'm joined by author, writer, producer, and podcaster Andrea Chalupa. We discuss her new film, Mr. Jones, that comes out in the UK this autumn. And we also talk about her podcast, Gaslit Nation, which takes a look at the rise of authoritarian politics in the age of Trump. I think we have a very interesting discussion, not only about her film, but also about its relevance today. Now, please bear in mind, when you listen to this conversation, it was actually recorded just after the Barr controversial summary memo of the Mueller report was released. And it was also, this episode was recorded just before the redacted version of the report came out. So there's a few things in here that we discuss that at the time we were speculating about that have now been confirmed. So um, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I thought I, I really enjoyed chatting with Andrea and I found it quite cathartic. Um, so <laughs> I hope you find it cathartic as well. I certainly did. Um, yeah, I, I really did enjoy doing this episode. So um, yeah. I hope you enjoy it. And uh, just before we begin, I just want to say a huge thank you to everybody who's listening to this podcast and supporting it. We've been having some fantastic reviews coming in, and I'm very grateful for people taking the time to review the podcast. And I just want to say also, if you like the work that I'm doing, please consider becoming a Patreon subscriber. You can go to patreon.com forward slash drycleanercast, and on there you can become a subscriber and you can directly support the work that I'm doing. And if you do, I'll be eternally grateful. I'm also looking at some sort of uh, merchandise some swag for you so I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm uh, going to take some time out in the next few weeks and have a real long hard think about what I can give back in return for your generosity if you don't want to become a subscriber that's absolutely fine you can leave me a uh, physical tip now there's a link in the podcast so when you're listening to this podcast in your app if you click on the image you'll find a PayPal link and you can leave me a few pounds or a few dollars so I can go and get a cup of coffee uh, as a little reward for the work that I do on this podcast I just want to say again, thank you so much for your support. Thank you so much for listening. I've noticed our listen numbers have gone up over the last few months. So something's going right. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And I really hope you enjoyed this episode. I really enjoyed making it. And I look forward to catching you on the next podcast. Thank you very much. Take care. Opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the filmmakers and sponsors of the film The Dry Cleaner. Andrea, welcome to the Dry Cleaner Cast. Great, thank you so much. Can you just tell us a bit about yourself for listeners who are unfamiliar with you and your work? Sure. So I am a writer, filmmaker, journalist in Brooklyn, New York, and I wrote the screenplay and produced the film Mr. Jones, starring a lot of British talent, (laughs) including James Norton, who stars on McMafia and Grantchester, and Vanessa Kirby, who is Princess Margaret on the Crown. And Peter Sarsgaard, who who was an American actor who pulled off a great English accent in an education with Carrie Mulligan. Yeah. And it's directed by the three-time Academy Award nominee, Agnieszka Holland, who gave us The Secret Garden, Europa Europa in Darkness, and a whole host of other beautiful films. Fantastic. Well, look, I'm really looking forward to seeing Mr. Jones. I haven't seen it yet, but I'm fascinated by it. So can you just tell us about what this this film's about? Sure. So Mr. Jones, which should be coming uh, to the UK this fall. So Mr. Jones is inspired. I've been working on the, on the script, doing the research, the writing, figuring it all out for about uh, 14 years. I started wow. it in my final year of college where I was sort of procrastinating on doing what I needed to be doing to graduate. And just started this really sort of uh, long shot project of trying to write a screenplay and get it produced. And it's inspired by my grandfather, who lived through Stalin's genocide famine in Ukraine. And his stories that he passed on to me about what life was like uh, growing up in Ukraine during the Russian Revolution and then the takeover by the communists and, of course, Stalin. Mm. And the story follows a real-life young Welsh journalist who's like 27 years old. He was absolutely brilliant, came from Barry Wales, and went on to Cambridge and 
spoke French and German and Russian fluently and Welsh, of course, and um, was a foreign advisor to to David Lloyd George. Yeah. And he was very ambitious, very brilliant, and went to Moscow looking for a big story to you know help his career as a journalist. And he stumbled upon this man-made famine where Stalin was deliberately mass murdering millions of people. And he stumbles upon this and exposes it. And there's this big cover-up back in Moscow by leading journalists of the day, including Walter Duranti, the Moscow bureau chief of the New York Times, who had just won the Pulitzer Prize. So it's this David and Goliath story between the great Walter Duranti, who was celebrated in the West, who was called our man in Moscow. Um, he would go to the Algonquin Round Table in New York City and play poker with other luminaries of, of the early 1930s. And so it's sort of like, who would the world believe? They're going to believe Walter Duranti over this young kid from, from Wales. And so our story sort of pits them against each other in this horrible, real-life, historical case study of one of the greatest media cover-ups of the 20th century that most people have never heard of. And it's a warning story of the dangers of access journalism. And it's a warning story of corruption in the media and corruption in governments that will turn a blind eye to genocide just so their industries can continue to make money with mass murdering regimes. You know, as we're seeing, of course, a lot in the world today with yeah. the U.S. and Saudi Arabia and so forth. Um, so it's it's a tale about right now, unfortunately, <laughs> even though it started off as, as a project to honor my grandfather and what he survived and give voice to other survivors and victims of this little known famine and, and really sort of honor them and honor human rights, and human dignity. But unfortunately, it's become a mirror of our times. Yeah. And what is it that sort of drew you particularly to Gareth Jones? Well, I love that he's fiercely independent and he wasn't interested necessarily in being fashionable as too many people are. And that's what drives the conformity that we see in, in governments and media. Uh, he wasn't, he, I mean, the more I researched, the more I tried to, you know, I'm, I'm originally from Northern California, like a small farm town, university town in Northern California. So for me, the hardest part was getting inside the head of a Welshman, a young Welshman in, in the 1930s. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I went to Aberystwyth, where Gareth went to university originally before Cambridge. Mm. And he, there, that's that's where his um, his papers are kept, his letters, his diaries. And it was when I was reading it was when I was reading his letters home during this turning point in his life, where he was about to stumble upon this huge story of the of the famine it was his letters home to his parents telling him like stop essentially stop nagging me stop telling me what i should do with my life i'm i'm not you know i'm not going to settle down i'm not going to marry jane evans i'm not going to have some boring job somewhere why would you want any son of yours to settle on security security is a myth like he, so gareth very much wanted to have a front row seat to watching history unfold yeah. and live a life of, of adventure and record his age. It was, it was, a, it was, as we all know now, looking back, it was a critical moment in time. Like we're talking about early 1933 when he stumbles upon this famine. And, he, and he's in his twenties, isn't he? Mm -hmm. He's a young man. He's, he's completely bold and brilliant. And Right before he goes to Moscow, the big story he's coming off of that he just wrote, which got him got him buzzed and got him noticed, was talking his way somehow onto an airplane with the newly uh, with the, with the uh, with the new Chancellor of Germany, Adolf Hitler. Wow! <laughs> so he really had a he wanted a front row seat to history, and 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 I think you know the Hitler story got him attention, and I think when he went to Moscow to then take on Stalin. I think he that's where he got more than he had bargained for. Yeah. God, even Indiana Jones didn't manage to actually share a plane with uh, Adolf Hitler, did he? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Gareth was very much sort of, of that caliber. Yeah. God, that sounds amazing. Well, can you, can you tell us a bit about the Animal Farm connection to Gareth's story? Yeah. So George Orwell is a character in, in Mr. Jones. He serves as a Greek chorus. We open on uh, this writer in London. Uh, writing the words of Animal Farm, and Animal Farm narrates Gareth's journey as he goes out to get the truth of this famine out there in the world. And that was something I stumbled upon in a moment of desperation, because you know Gareth's story itself 
alone is tragic. What mm. when this David and Goliath tale ultimately happens is that Walter Duranti, the great Pulitzer Prize winner, winner, the New York Times Moscow bureau chief, he ultimately wins. So he wins. The, mm. His his media cover up is successful, and he goes on to be celebrated and live out his life and in Florida. <laughs> and <laughs> meanwhile, Gareth, shortly after exposing the famine. Falls in, you know, while he's on a reporting trip in the Far East, he falls in with some men who are connected to the Soviet secret police, according to research that's come out in re- recent years. And he, and then, then Gareth is murdered. And, and so Gareth dies uh, the day he's he's murdered the day before his thirtieth birthday, and forgotten. Mm. And so it's a tragic story alone. And so when I first wrote that script, no one was really interested. I mean, they were shocked to learn that this genocide famine had happened. They'd never heard of it, mm. but but no one wanted to produce it because it was just sort of, oh, that's a sad story. And I was really sort of depressed myself and trying to figure out what to do with it because I really felt strongly that, that it deserved to be told and I wanted justice for Gareth and to fight for his voice and to resurrect him. And so I, I turned to George Orwell for inspiration to figure out Okay, well, how did Orwell communicate these horrific ideas of of genocide and oppression to a mass audience with his success of Animal Farm in 1984? And it was reading an introduction to Animal Farm where there's just like a short paragraph saying how Orwell struggled to get Animal Farm out into the world. And finally, an independent press put it out and somehow a copy Mm -hmm. managed to get in the hands of Ukrainian refugees stranded in in Europe after World War II, and they immediately understood what Orwell was trying to say with Animal Farm. And they hunted down his home address in London and wrote him letters, and together they translated Animal Farm into Ukrainian and gave out those copies to Ukrainian refugees who then travel with this this Ukrainian translation of Animal Farm out into the the new world. And so I was immediately struck with this, and and I decided to incorporate Orwell as a character and these refugees as a character, Mm. and to show that you cannot kill the truth. That where when Gareth was silenced, um, Orwell picks up and he gets the truth out through Animal Farm, and then these refugees, the victims themselves of Stalin, help him. And so for me, it was this this tremendous um, illustration of how, and and from what I've seen in my work and and as a journalist and and covering. resistance movements against uh dictatorships and and uh, and 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 corruption is it takes it takes a chain to get the truth out it takes crowdsourcing and and you know Mm -hmm. social media what we've seen it's like you you don't do it alone and so i very much saw a reflection of that in this story of, of sort of people working together and and when i did that when i incorporated all of that into the script i then found out uh when i was visiting my uncle and aunt in their farmhouse in the Catskills, I, I was telling them, you know, what I'd been up to as working on this, this movie project. I told them everything I just told you. And my uncle looks at me and goes, oh, I have a copy of that Ukrainian refugee camp edition of Animal Farm. I picked oh, it wow. up as a kid in, in Germany when they were stranded in Germany after the war. And so my aunt got up from the table and, and came, you know, left the room and came back with this tattered yellow uh book of Orwell's Animal Farm in Ukrainian that I had seen only in my research and gave it to me. And now yeah. I have it. So it, it was just sort of a sign that it was, the project was meant to be. So, and shortly thereafter, the, the, the script got picked up and and, and then, you know, found the, the, the director and everything sort of came together. Fantastic. That is amazing, having a copy of the book in your family. I mean, wow. Mm. <laughs> I mean, you know, people, I, I'm always um, in two minds about that whole, um, uh, what do they call it, the, you know, the idea of the uh, interconnectivity of the universe that sends you um, kind of uh, messages but occasionally you just get these weird things that happen when you're on these creative endeavors and everything's kind of falling apart and then suddenly it's one little thing that kind of pops up and you think oh yes i meant to do this and then it kind of everything falls into place and I've, I've had that on projects and it's just like amazing um oh i'm a huge believer in that i think it's like if you show up the universe shows up for you yeah no definitely um quick thing actually can we do a very very brief dummies guide to the ukrainian famine because there might be some people who know a bit about it but don't know much about it and it'd be quite nice if you could just give us a quick quick guide to that if that's possible yes of course and just as sort of more reading background and there's excellent books out there. Uh, the Pulitzer Prize winning historian Ann Applebaum just came out with Red Famine. Yeah. <laughs> and then another amazing discovery in Red Famine. 
from Anne Applebaum's book is that uh, she cites my grandfather. So I learned oh, from wow. her book that just came out that my grandfather gave hours of testimony of having survived this famine to the U.S. Congress and their investigation of it. And and, and Applebaum cites him. And I, I just discovered that through her, her book. So there's a lot of research that's been coming out in recent years. Hmm. Ukraine, ha- over the last 80 years or so in academia and in media, uh, there's been sort of a Russian lens that has been put mm. on Ukraine, where it's just sort of this understanding of Ukraine um, through Russia experts from you know Russian language and history and so, and, and, and other you know, so so forth experts. So what we've really seen in recent years with like with um, an opening of archives and so forth coming out of Ukraine is a decolonization of Ukraine's own history and, an, and a decolonization of, of understanding of this famine. So yeah. what happened was in the in the years 1932, 1933, Soviet authorities, um, Soviet authorities deliberately starved to death uh, millions of people in the Soviet Union. Ninety percent of the victims were Ukrainian. Um, there were also like, victims in Kazakhstan and elsewhere outside the borders of Ukraine, but predominantly 90 percent of the victims were Ukrainian. And the reason for that was that the, when Stalin was pushing through his five year plan to force collectivization, to force uh, the breadbasket of of Europe, Ukraine to get rid of their their centuries old systems of farming and mm. join these collective farms. Uh, there was great resistance to that within Ukraine. Like we were talking about like like armed uprisings against it, like many battles. Yeah. <laughs> Women were marching and organizing. If, if you remember images of Ukraine's protests in Euromaidan in 2013-2014, yeah. there, there, there was a, like a big rebellion against um, this massive, uh, brutal overhaul of collectivization. Mm. And because of that resistance and because Ukrainians had a history of resistance against Moscow, they fought for their independence during the Russian Revolution and won independence for a few years. So because of that, so Stalin had this you know, famous paranoia, paranoia where he just needed to crush Ukrainians once and for all, and he was going to do it by committing mass genocide. And so what he did was they sealed the border of Ukraine so nobody could get in, nobody could get out. Journalists were yeah. not allowed to go down there. Um, and and then they systematically confiscated the food and, and, and left the populations, including where there's the most resistance in the rural areas outside the cities, they left them to starve. They left them to die a slow death. And so then you'd have ghost villages, you'd have packs of uh, orphans, overrun orphanages, mm. horrendous stories of cannibalism. Uh, there's um, Timothy Snyder of Yale University writes in Bloodlands about uh, children in orphanage orphanage being and being so ravaged by hunger that they eat they turn on one child and eat the child. And those stories were not uncommon. And for instance, my grandfather, when he was writing about the famine, what he witnessed, mm. uh, he would he wrote a very common sight of body collectors um, walking, you know, just with their horse carts going through the town and, and collecting dead bodies like trash. And one scene that that survived several years of rewrites of this script yeah. came from what my grandfather himself witnessed and wrote about in his memoir that he left me before he passed away. And that was a scene where my grandfather's walking down a street and he sees this dead woman on the side of the road and her still living infant uh, pawing at the mother, trying to wake her up. And the, the horse-drawn carriage of the body collector comes up and, and throws the dead body of the woman and the still living infant on this pile of bodies and takes them out to the graveyard to be buried in a mass grave. Oh, man, so that like, is a yeah. scene that we actually filmed in U- in Ukraine um, that, J- that James Norton filmed. And yeah. the night before we shot it, I sent out to the entire cast and crew, including James, of course, uh, the words that my grandfather wrote and the words of the scene in the script just to show how it, you know, they were just remind people what we were filming. Mm. Wow. And I bet that was quite a difficult thing to do on the actual day as well. I mean, crikey. Yeah. Yeah. We had people, we had, we were out in a rural part of outside Kiev filming in March and there were old women in the village who had lived through the famine that came out to our film set to mm. see it and talk to us. And, there are also extras that, you know, of all, all ages, people um, 
Ukrainian extras who some who are crying because people this is this is uh, a very uh, horrific genocide for the Ukrainian people that they that they they had family in and yeah. it's still a big trauma and and yeah. a lot of it is what drives this big resistance towards towards the Kremlin today. Mm. Mm, no, definitely. Well, I mean, yeah, one can't help but think about the Russian invasion of the Ukraine in 2014 and then, you know, and all the information operations surrounding it. Because, I mean, I remember having arguments with people on Facebook about Russia and Ukraine. Because I think the Russians were trying to paint the Ukrainian government as some like far right nationalists um, and trying to sort of paint themselves as sort of liberators of the Ukraine. It was just insane um, and amazing how many people were picking this sort of nonsense up from like Russia today and things like that. Yeah, without question. And what's funny is that um, it, it's even, I, I cover that extensively, this whole far right mm. uh, propaganda that the Kremlin was spewing and trying to, exactly what you just said. And and what's really interesting is, yes, there is a far right problem in Ukraine, like mm. there is in every single country in Europe right now. Mm. Mm. And in fact, arguably the far right, crisis is even greater in the uk with you know you had joe cox who was murdered yeah. uh, by yeah. the far right and far right propaganda in the u.s our far right crisis dwarfs anything going on in in, in ukraine like we have our far right is in the white house mm. and so what so ukraine's little far right i mean yes there's a far right problem in every single country in europe today but the reality is that when the kremlin was trying to paint ukraine that way Jewish leaders, Jewish communities were issuing statements saying, no, that's not true. That's simply not mm. true. And the revolution in Ukraine itself had a lot of Jewish leaders and organizers and activists and so forth. And um, right now you have a Jewish prime minister, a partly Jewish president in Ukraine, and the top contender for president is Jewish. And no yeah. one really cares. It's, it's just, it's just, it's the, it, and so the, the big joke among Ukrainians right now is what if Ukraine has a Jewish president? What will the what will the Kremlin propaganda say now? <laughs> yeah, like, are they still going to be pushing that far right, you know, rhetoric? Oh man, well, they yeah, it's an interesting thing actually because like, anti-Semitism seems to be on the rise again, and it's like, um, and in the UK we've had a lot of problems with certain sort of sections of the left. I call them the far left. Malcolm Nance calls them the ultra left, <laughs> and um, but uh, they're kind of all united by Jeremy Corbyn, sadly, who's the leader leader of the Labour Party at the moment, um, and we've had countless scandals of Labour members um, sort of posting some horrifically anti-Semitic kind of content when sort of debating sort of Israel and Palestine. Um, and I suppose, I guess, I can only imagine Russian propaganda um, already has its tentacles in that and probably will push down that road, I, I'm assuming. Yeah, no, I think I think there's a big danger when, I mean, there's, there's what we always say on, 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 my, on my podcast, Gaslit Nation, is mm. you're not anti-American, you're anti-Trump when you criticize the corruption and, and the human rights abuses. You're not anti-Russian, you're anti-Putin when you criticize the corruption and human rights abuses. You're not anti-Israeli. You're not anti-Semitic when you criticize Netanyahu and the corruption and the human rights mm. abuses. But I think on the left, they don't. They miss that nuance uh, clearly. What they, it's troubling yeah. what's coming out of Corbyn's camp and how slow Corbyn and the Labour leadership has been to to refuse uh, to stand up against anti-Semitism and, and expose it. I mean, hate is hate. It's, it doesn't matter how you yeah. vote. It's it, it is the same destructive ideology. And we have to remember that it's what divides us as well and weakens us because we have to be mm. united because the number one enemy that we all share, whether you're Russian, Israeli or American, is is against kleptocracy mm. and the strengthening of kleptocracy mm. and this, this international alliance of autocrats that we're seeing between Putin and Erdogan and Netanyahu and Trump and Kim Jong-un and yeah. Maduro and, and so forth. And just in Sudan. Yeah. I mean, even Saudi Arabia too. Yes, exactly. Gosh, MBS who who butchered a, um, a Washington Post writer, Jamal Khashoggi, and then yeah. of course you have the uprising in Sudan with a dictator that that feels like um, Russia is going to come to his protection there, like Russia's coming to the protection of Maduro right now is sending Russian special forces to Venezuela. Yeah, so be worried about that. It's a very scary time. So we can't we can't allow any. We should have zero tolerance towards any. Any ideology of hate, whether yeah. it's on the left or the right, and just people on the left have to be united against our common enemy, which is kleptocracy and, and autocrats. Definitely. What I find interesting is how 
Vladimir Putin seems to be supported by um, so many people in the political spectrums of the West um, and in the Middle East and other places too, because I've got some Middle Eastern relatives and some of them really like Putin, some of them hate him. Um, and um, yeah, I just find it amazing how Putin manages to unite so many different factions from the far right and the far left. Um, and I'm also, one of the things that cropped up in my mind when listening about your uh, so reading about your film was about how um since the sort of 2008 crash how um people like stalin and mao are becoming more popular again i mean i was in 2014 i was doing some filming and um for a union in britain um and i had to film the may day march and it was for um as a tribute to tony ben and i was kind of shocked by all the images of Mao, Stalin, and other leading communists, and how then mainstream sort of um, political people, including Jeremy Corbyn, with all that imagery around them, and they, you know, don't even mention it, they don't even have a problem with it. And, I, and, it, and since then, it kind of is made me question my own. I suppose because as a, I consider myself a sort of leftist, I've now realised I'm sort of a centre leftist or maybe a centre liberalist. I don't know. Um, still trying to figure out what label I fit into, but um, yeah, <laughs> it's just such an interesting thing, and I'm just um, I was just shocked by how many people, and they were in their sort of twenties, who were wandering around these images of Stalin as if they were, he was a hero, um, and I just sort of seen that as a person in my sort of 20s and early 30s since 2008 i mean like going on university campuses and things like that you just sort of see this sort of rise of popularity of of communism and i'm just like amazed but i don't know if you've got any sort of thoughts or experiences on that sorry a bit of a long tangent there <laughs> yeah no i think it's extremely troubling i think it's sickening it's like germany putting up hitler statues and that's what's happening in russia right now is they're putting up statues to stalin God, yeah. and they're they're pressing historians who are specialized in stalin's great terror including one that uncovered a mass grave of stalin's victims mm. in the 1930s he was thrown into prison on trumped up pedophilia charges that's one of the like the labels like they like to throw at people and 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 even in, even before i think the decline of sort of relations between the kremlin and the west there was a um moscow's busiest or one of the the big biggest uh, metro hubs inside moscow got a makeover to glorify stalin essentially and like you know bring him back as like this great leader that you know won world war ii and so forth and and so it's it's not primarily being driven by uh, by Putin's mm. Kremlin, but, it, but, it, but Putin's Kremlin has been incredibly proactive yeah. in in whitewashing Stalin's um, crimes and oppressing uh, anybody who speaks out against them and organizations that that do try to honor the memory of Stalin's victims and who he really was. And I think in the West, that's all being latched onto. Just in general, because I think a lot of a lot of those on the left stupidly feel like they need to counter the forces of mm. the U.S. by aligning themselves with a mass murdering dictator, which just makes no sense no, at all. It's <laughs> madness, and, and it's, it's, it's it's such a comp it's such a gross compromise of yeah. your values to do such a thing. Yeah. And and this was what really drove Orwell to write Animal Farm. When he went off with his wife on their honeymoon to go kill fascists in the Spanish Civil War, quite a honeymoon. Um, Orwell, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that was really how they spent their honeymoon. And they got married and went out to Spain. I had my honeymoon in Spain actually, and I was near Orwell Square. Oh, did you? Really? But I wasn't shooting anybody. Well, they had a, they had quite a productive honeymoon, and so Orwell was shot shot in the neck and was mm. and had to re, you know recuperate. And meanwhile, you had the Soviet secret police searching his hotel room. And stealing his journals, so you have Orwell's journals kept somewhere in Moscow mm. from that period, which, is, which would be really interesting to read. Um, but um, so, what happened from that period was what they witnessed in the fighting in the Spanish Civil War was they were seeing their friends who were Trotskyist supporters mm. disappearing or being hunted and killed. And what they were witnessing without realizing it was Stalin's purges being carried out um, in the Spanish Civil War at, with the Stalinists hunting down and murdering Trotskyists, Trotsky supporters. And when Orwell and his wife escaped Spain with their lives, knowing that they were on this, uh, they were on this enemy's list themselves. When they got the hell out of Spain, um, barely they they returned to London and tried to tell their fellow leftist intellectual friends what they had experienced. Mm. And 
it sounded crazy. It sounded absolutely crazy to describe Stalin, that, 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 that Soviets were killing each other, that they were cannibalizing each other, that Stalinists were purging Trotskyists. And Orwell was so sort of frustrated in sense that his friends wouldn't believe him because he needed they needed Stalin to succeed. They needed socialism to succeed to counter, of course, mm. uh, the forces of capitalism that wreaked havoc on the world with the Great Depression mm. and all that corruption. And um, and so they they it was willful ignorance just because they they needed to have some hope and 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 to have sort of a solution of building a utopia. They really thought that it could happen um, through Stalin. And so Orwell wrote Animal Farm deliberately as a children's mm. book to basically explain to his idiot friends <laughs> that this is that this is how the Soviet Union actually works. And his prime motivation was to rip the left away mm. from Stalin. Mm. And it, because he, he was really concerned that it would discredit the movement. Mm. And he was right to an extent because here in the U.S. you have Fox News that likes to banter around Soviet breadlines and and Maduro's Venezuela to show that this is the socialism that that people on the left in the U.S. are, are trying to achieve in America, which is simply not true. Yeah. So Orwell was onto something in trying to divorce the left from worshiping symbols and and leaders like Stalin. Yeah. He was dead right. And, and that's the thing, like with Jeremy Corbyn, um, with my experience in 2014, my exact thought was you are playing into right wing talking points by surrounding yourself with all this stuff with no comment, with no, you know, uh, not Jer Jeremy Corbyn, but all those people who spoke on that stage, you open yourself up to basically looking like communist sympathizers. And that plays right into the far right and the right, you know. Um, I just felt like I, you know, you know, the phenomena of a, um, kind of like a nutty racist relative you meet at Christmas or Thanksgiving. I kind of felt like that I met the left wing equivalents of that when I was at that march. And I was just like, and, and I feel like so many people on the left are not even aware of this today, um, and don't want to take ownership of this problem today. Yeah, no, it, they, it, it, it and also, those people don't get to determine whether we're left or not. If if you believe in progressive mm, values, mm. you believe in them not only for yourself but people all over the world. I mean, those that was the lesson, that was the mission statement of Martin Luther King in the South when he took on authoritarianism of Jim Crow laws. Yeah, and it was it, it was it was this fight for an, it was an international movement for social justice, for human rights, for economic dignity. And you cannot align yourself with a mass murdering dictator. It's it, 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 what it really does. It's like a, it's like an, it's like a, an authoritarian craving for a strong man. It's an authoritarian yeah. craving for a dictator who's gonna who's going to just be it, the, the ultimate expression of all your anger and hate and stomp out your enemies, whoever they are. Mm -hmm. And that's really mm -hmm. what really what what that is displaying. Any sort of allegiance alliance with 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 mao or stalin that is like a, it, that is a obvious craving for dictatorship and, and nothing more and so those people are mm. not left i mean if you look at mussolini for instance he started off as a socialist and then he brought fascism into the world he fascism existed mm. for the first time in italy and so you have to really watch out for people like that because what they're ultimately craving is a strong man and if you look at the case for Venezuela, you've seen some prominent voices on the left in the U.S. like openly advocating for Maduro, and and just and really sort of ignoring the fact that it was his economic policies for so long, along with uh, Chavez, that destroyed that country. So anybody who um, advocates for Maduro in Venezuela or just is, is basically admitting to you that they don't understand basic economics. And and unfortunately, that that like sort of level of willful ignorance can seriously undermine the progressive movement in the U.S. Because in America, it's not socialist to demand that corporations stop polluting you for profits. It's common sense in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> it's like that's not as, but yet that's yeah, yeah, exactly. It, it's not it's not socialist to demand that. The one percent in America stop getting all these tax breaks for private jets, and 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 corporations get tax breaks for setting jobs overseas. That's not socialist, and unfortunately, too many on the left 
that we need to unite with to really bring in common sense, progressive leaders and legislation to protect ourselves, to protect ourselves from hypercapitalism and, and corporate fascism. Mm-hmm. They're stupidly stuck in this like first trimester in freshman year college juvenile yeah. Che Guevara t-shirt. <laughs> you know, like, and this is this is exactly what's happened in Britain. It feel it's so juvenile without any thought or any respect for history. Yeah, yeah, it, it stuns me. And and like, and I was I I was against Corbyn before it was fashionable. Um, from day the second he became leader of the Labour Party, I actually quit the Labour Party because I could see what was coming, and I and I could feel it. I couldn't necessarily express it as succinctly as I'd like to, but um, it was, I was just stunned. And and the problem is it completely undermines social values. And, it, and, and Corbyn is still, even though we've got a very uh, rubbish right-wing government, not far-right government, but almost, um, with the Tories, he still trails behind in the polls. The most popular politician in UK politics right now, according to all the surveys, is don't know. <laughs> Um, they're always sort of polling at about thirty eight percent, and it's just that it, it just shows things of politics is failing in that regard. Sorry, we're kind of going off on a tangent there, but but it, it really it it the, this um, as you put it, sort of first grade, first semester kind of politics just ends up failing everybody, and it's it's so frustrating. <laughs> um, and I'm worried for you guys for twenty twenty because I I see I just see what what's happening and over there the the democrats right the democrats seem to be searching for their soul and unfortunately certain people seem to be trying to push it down this very sort of far left tangent that's just not gonna work <laughs> sadly and it needs to we need you know if anything um trump needs to be stopped i'm really kind of going off now my impartiality's completely gone now but he needs to be stopped and like and the only people who can stop it is the Democrats. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, I think that's, that's really sort of in your situation with Corbyn, the heartbreak you feel towards Corbyn and how he's really led labor and therefore your country is straight because there's no yeah. strong, sensible, common sense driven opposition to um, the conservatives. And, and if we're just choosing, yeah, yeah and, 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 in, and in the UK, you have you have Tories that are choosing their party over country. And Brexit. Right? It's about preserving yeah. the party over, doing, over, over you know, acting with courage when it comes to Brexit and bringing it back to another vote now that you know what you know now because that vote was just based on lies. Yeah, it's, it's madness. And I, and I still, to this day, am debating people who aren't aware of the lies and it's just like wow but anyway that's a total tangent it could be a complete podcast in itself yeah, having facebook I'm... debates of people <laughs> um let's let's quickly talk about i'd love to talk about your podcast if you still have time because i'm just mm-hmm. looking at time now um gaslit nation now um can you talk to us a bit about gaslit, gaslit nation and why you started it yes yeah, so gaslit nation is was is a podcast that I launched with my friend Sarah Kenzier, who is a uh, writer yeah. and scholar of authoritarian states. And Sarah and I talk regularly. We have these conversations. Well, both of us have studied authoritarianism for 15 years or so. So we will hmm. we'll be on the phone anyway for like an hour, two hours of week, a week, helping each other make sense of what's going on and fact-checking corporate media and just making sure that we're not losing our minds and that we both see the same thing and how this is all going to play out. So Mm. we've been essentially helping uh, sustain each other during the, the rise of Trump in 2016. And and since then, and, and sort of all the gaslighting that's gone on in corporate media and and normalizing him and promising us that that Trump was going to pivot. Trump was going to surround himself by with adults Mm experts were going to babysit him yeah he's going to become more presidential and stuff like that <laughs> yeah exactly the republicans were going to hold him to account and there'll be checks and balances and all the things that have gone out of the window very early on mm. and so we've really clung to each other to help uh, get through all this and our conversations were very helpful so yeah. when 2018 came around and we had this huge midterm election coming up that we absolutely had to win in order to have any check on on his abuses of power, we decided to open up our conversations to the to the public mm. um, by launching this podcast. And it's pretty much what we would talk about anyway, except we slow down. <laughs> we try to slow down and um, try to stop and explain things to give people context. And we don't swear nearly mm. as much. <laughs> and and um, 
but it is our conversations and we vent and we share where we think this is all going and what and also we we did a lot of um contests with you know audience engagement driven contests to try to uh, drive people out to the polls mm. to vote and to knock on doors to drive out voters and that was really exciting. We got messages from around the country saying that 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 they, people knocked on doors for the first time in their lives to talk to voters because of our show. And so we've really made it about engaging with people to let them know that they're not alone, they're not losing their minds. Yeah. Um, because what we've you know what we've seen is that in the U.S. it's an absolute powder keg. Um, people are very frustrated that there hasn't been any accountability. They they literally fear. Uh, authoritarianism in, yeah. in America, um, because all signs are pointing to that. Uh, anytime you have a record number, of, you know, anytime you have children locked in cages and children missing and an actual sex trafficking ring springing up on the border because of a deliberately cruel policy, immigration policy, um, this is, these are, and then you have the president himself dehumanizing asylum seekers and trying to end asylum seekers. I mean, this is, mm what authoritarianism looks like like they 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 dehumanize and they scapegoat and they go for the weakest members of society first and they attack the press and and they they um attack whistleblowers and they purge the investigators so we've been documenting mm. all of it including um the horrific level of harassment and abuse going uh, being being hurled by the president of the United States from him directly giving mm. speeches, speaking mm. at rallies, from his Twitter account, from his uh, far-right allies on cable news, uh, attacking by name several FBI investigators and uh, dehumanizing them and making them targets of harassment. Yeah, it's unbelievable. And um, social media bots and, and far-right blogs and the whole far-right mm. uh, media uh, echo chamber. Like This is targeted harassment which breaks the the twitter uh service policy but twitter refuses to shut down his account so you so you we've seen an actual purge of the u.s government of experts of law enforcement officers and we've seen a vacuum of power in its place which will and and those who remain are those who are most loyal to his ideology uh, his racist ideology and so you have a vacuum of power and racist sycophants who are ideologically aligned with him that remain. And so what this does is allow corruption to flourish, mm. allow opportunities for our enemies to come in and take mm. full advantage. Um, we see a disturbing alliance between Putin and, and Trump, which is undeniable. We see it with our own eyes. That Helsinki, that Helsinki appearance alone was shocking. And by one report uh, in the press shocked the CIA that um, officers that watched it, they just couldn't believe it was just such an expression of how, this president aligns himself with far-right leaders, with dictators. He's normalized Kim Jong-un, which is unthinkable. Yeah. Unthinkable. Uh, and so all of this is completely surreal. So Gaslit Nation mm. is a weekly show that reminds people, yes, we, we see it too. We see that this is surreal, and this is where we think it's headed. And here are some actions you can take to deal with it. Here's what's worked to resist authoritarianism throughout history. And so we, we're really focused on helping people stay mm. engaged and not turn away and not feel hopeless and to give them concrete actions and insights and frameworks so they can um, read through the newspeak of corporate media that has done a lot of damage to normalize uh, this uh, corrupt and abusive administration. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and, it, and it's, it's just, I think it's Bob Seska describes it as the fire hose of news. It's just always so much to keep track of. And even now... We call it the fire hose of terror. yeah. And it's like, and, and honestly, even when I was preparing this episode, I was thinking I could go into a great lengthy conversation about Trump and everything, but I, I've lost track of how many things to list. Um, I've still got uh, Malcolm Nance's books, brilliant, uh, The Plot to Hack Democracy in America. Um, and, um, you know, <laughs> so I sometimes have to keep referring to those books just to keep track of what happened when. Oh, man, but it's, it's so much. There's so much, and I'm starting up to you, but just so you know, we're, we're launching uh, today a reading list yeah. and an action guide to help people uh, stay grounded and, and keep track of it. So that's the most important thing. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. It's just keeping track of it all. Well, look, I don't want to... 
hold you up because I've realized we've gone over half an hour. But Andre, thank you so much for joining me today. I've really enjoyed this chat. And it's actually, I found it kind of a little bit therapeutic too, because I've been, since the, uh, that sort of, I'll call it the damp squib of the Mueller investigation, I've been feeling a bit like, God, oh, you know, like a lot of people, I've just been feeling a bit like, um, you know, um, what's next? I just, you know, I, I don't know. I just feel exhausted by American politics at the moment. And I don't even live in America. So it's like, <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh well yeah no we we share that feeling yeah no the, now we're at the cover-up phase yeah where um bar attorney general Barr, the iran contra cleanup guy as we call him what a guy to do a cover-up yeah there's several yeah there's several indictments for iran contra during reagan and Barr came in and did the cleanup job there and he was hired to do exactly that for trump yeah. and he's doing a great job of it and he's testifying today as we speak uh to congress and being defiant towards, you know, questions from Democrats and and really revealing that um, it was a cleanup job. It was a, that was his letter where he tried to downplay what Mueller found and so forth. And and so, yeah, it's it's a very dangerous time and we mm. refuse to normalize any of it. And and, and it, it was just a cover up plain and simple. But um, all the one sort of silver lining of all of this is that the investigative journalists like David Korn and so many others did their jobs by documenting all of the Kremlin connections between Trump and the Russian mafia that go back 30 years. I mean, his own idiot children, Don Jr. and Eric Trump, admitted that that Trump family businesses were reliant. They're dependent mm. on Russian money. They they were the Russian money faucet was on for them. Even during the great recession of 2008, they're able to build. Uh, you had, um, you had a massive purchase of a Trump property for well over what it was worth on the market by, by a Russian oligarch close to the Kremlin and on and on and on these connections go in 2013, the FBI busted a Russian mafia gambling den in Trump tower, in New York city, one floor beneath Trump's own personal apartment. Wow. And, and, and of course, you had his longtime friend, Paul Manafort, mm. who was on a $10 million a year contract since 2006 from Oleg Deripaska, a Russian oligarch close to Putin. And that contract was for Paul Manafort to further the, the business interest, to further the interest of Putin's government and businesses and media in, in Ukraine and the U.S. Mm. And so, you know, there's a whole universe of Kremlin and Russian mafia connections with the Trump family. Um, and, and that still stands and yes of course the the legal bar for conspiracy not collusion collusion is not a legal term but the legal bar for conspiracy is very high um, but there is still an intelligence investigation that's ongoing mm. and on top of that you know this is a cover-up we're witnessing because because this when you had bill clinton impeached the star report was graphic deliberately graphic to inflict as much political damage on the Clintons as possible to wound them, mortally wound them, to take it, to take them out. And this um, is the this is the Republicans doing the same sort of uh, political Machiavellianism, um, but this time it's it's their guy that's in trouble, and so they're of course protecting him and refusing to put out the report. And what and they they claim it's coming. Barr promised it in a week, but it's going to be redacted. And so well, so it's but. When in reality, Congress should have had the report by now. Mm. And because you have uh, people like Adam Schiff, who runs the Intelligence uh, Committee, he has the security clearance to see the full, mm. the full Mueller report without any single redactions because he has security clearance. And the fact that the Iran-Contra cleanup guy, Attorney General William Barr, refuses to give it to him, that is a banana republic level cover-up. Yeah. And so none of this is normal. And again, any sort of solace you could take from it is that the investigative journalists did their jobs. They gave us books. They gave us all types of documents to show that all of, all of these nefarious dealings between the Trump family and Russian mafia and the Kremlin have, are out there in the public domain more than they were before. And they should have been there before as this guy was you know, running in the first place. But this was a victory for investigative journalism. And it, 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 it is exactly what it looks like. It is a cover up that we're now in the phase of. Yeah. And we're, and at the moment, anybody who talks about this um, is being labeled a Russophobe or a conspiracy theorist. And, I, and 
it just and by you know some interesting people like Glenn Greenwald <laughs> of all people um and i yeah i just find it it's it's just i've never experienced anything like this and i'm a and i was once a conspiracy theorist myself and there are times i'm like god am i still a conspiracy theorist i have to double check myself just to make sure i'm not falling into bad habits you know those those guys those guys are just really they're First of all, Glenn Greenwald, tell us why you deleted 27,000 tweets mm. during key years when you're helping Julian Assange, who's been you know, labeled an instrument of the Kremlin. So tell us why yeah. you just deleted tens of thousands of tweets, Mr. Like Voice of Transparency. So no, it's it's like what we're seeing are a bunch of internet trolls that um, I've, I've spoken with some of them mm. and they really lack the long view on this. They really lack history on it. Their, their obsession is a witch hunt. They're really obsessed. They see this as invented by a corrupt FBI to, to um, take down Trump because Trump is a threat to them because Trump um, is he's, he's not an institutionalist and he's going to shake up the system, shake up the swamp. And so they really do see it as a witch hunt. Yeah. And they're just obsessed with Russiagate as anybody. They are, but they, they take a different position on it. Mm. And their position is that this was all politically motivated. It was, you know, driven by Ukrainian interests. It was driven by Democrats. It was driven by Clintons, driven by the British and Christopher Steele. They, they, so they're the fucking conspiracy theorists. Yeah, <laughs> like, they are. They refuse, they refuse to take the long view, which is that Trump's connections to both the Kremlin and dependence on Russian money, dirty Russian money, goes back three decades. Okay? Mm. So it's like... They were. It's like they they full on do not believe in history, just like those Corbinistas. They just have a total disregard for history here on this issue. And so, it's like they're like the trolls. Will, like 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 professional troll Glenn Green, Greenwald will yeah. always be loud. Yeah. Will always be loud. And what's funny is they're so easy to talk to. I was surprised how easy they were to chat with because they just they lack such a historical context. This entire crisis. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the that's the thing, isn't it? They're very loud and they lack this historical context. Andre, thank you so much. Where can listeners find out more about you and your work? Well, you can check out our website for the podcast. Um, my information's there. The, our contact is there. Our action guide, our reading guide, it's all there. And that website is gaslitnationpod.com that's gaslitnationpod.com thank you so much for everything today thank you thank you take care like what we're doing support the show by becoming a dry cleaner cast patreon subscriber today go to patreon.com slash dry cleaner cast for more information about the podcast, visit our website at drycleanercast.co.uk. Thanks for listening.